Second Peter 3, we'll start at verse 1. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ye ought to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. We'll stop there. Let us pray. Holy God, we come again before you, and as we now turn to your word and we examine part of this passage, we ask that you would help us to, um, to be stirred up, to be looking for your return, that we would be aware of the times we live in, and, um, Father, that we would most of all just have our hearts yearning more for Christ, for you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So this morning's text will be verses 3 and 4. I'd hope to cover all the verses up to verse 7, but there was too much information there that I thought, well, we'll just cut it up. But that being said, what I did do is I did make the points flow together from verses 3 through verse 7, and then I have some sub-points for this morning. So taking verses 3 to 7 as a whole, our points will be, Um, A challenged word, that's verses 3 and 4, and that will be this morning. And then verses 5 to 7 are the points for next time. A creating word, an executive word, and a final word. So the four points are a challenged word, a creating word, an executive word, and a final word. And so this morning, under the subheading, or subheadings under the first point, the challenged word we will see these points, the scoffer's presence, the scoffer's practice, and the scoffer's pride. So the scoffer's presence, practice, and pride. So please um, just focus here now on verse 3 to 4. So first of all, under the challenge word, we see the scoffer's presence. Knowing this, there shall come in the last days scoffers. Stirring up the reminders as Peter has done in the first verses, Remember, he was reminding them of the authority of Scripture, the cohesion of Old and New Testaments, speaking of one Lord, one coming, one great 
teacher and master and savior of the sheep, but also a judge. And so look at the text when it says, knowing this first. It's like the idea of chiefly remember this. Primarily, I'm just wanting to draw your attention to this reality that there's going to be scoffers in the last days. Now, you might be wondering, well, why is that so important to remember? Like, isn't there more important stuff? Well, the question could be that if Christ is triumphant, and he is, he conquered, he is Lord of heaven and earth, right? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Then how could there be scoffers, right? How could there be scoffers in the domain of such a great savior? So the question is kind of an honest and real question. And so we can't miss the timestamp that's in this text. Notice it says, there shall come in the last days. That's a loaded term in the Bible. In the last days. In the Old Testament, it's referred to as the time of God's kingdom and judgment. But in the New Testament, it gets zoomed in on a little bit more. And we realize that it is the era where Christ has come. So the fullness of time was Christ's coming And we're awaiting his second coming. And in that space is called the last days. The former days have passed. The fullness of time has come. And we are living in the last days. We're looking for that final day. And this idea of stirring up reminders about scoffers in the last days is thick in the New Testament. For example, Acts 20. The Apostle Paul, leaving the elders at Miletus. The Ephesian elders, he says this, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, notice these words, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples, followers after them. The Apostle Paul in his last letter wrote this, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. In his first letter to Timothy, he writes, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Jude 18, how that they told you that there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. There's a lot of examples here that the apostles understood that in this era, in this epoch, there would be a constant attack, a constant scoffing that was well understood by the apostles. And it was part of their preaching, right? They're reminding us of that was part of their understanding. So are you acutely aware that although there's already been scoffers in the past, the same thing is there's more scoffers now the last days will be filled with this polarization in fact it's interesting that in the old testament just before judah would be swept up by babylon into captivity the chronicler in the last chapter of second chronicles 36 says this but they mocked the messengers of god and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. There is something about the scoffing that reveals the heart of men. And so in these last days, men, many, many men and women will not bow the knee 
but instead will scoff and make fun of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Calvin said it well when he says, the more God offers himself by the gospel, the good news to the world, the more he invites men into his kingdom, the more audacious, on the other hand, will ungodly men vomit forth the poison of their impiety. Maybe you've experienced this antithesis, this polarity that exists between the holy kingdom of Christ and the unholy kingdom of the devil. You've seen the starkness of that. And you see it maybe in media when you see how they make a mockery of Christianity. They, they, they throw it under the bus, as it were, and they scoff it. Of all religions, Christianity is the most maligned religion. Maybe it's your co-worker that has scoffed the faith. In your face, perhaps. Don't be surprised by that. When you hear of pulpits becoming platforms of heresy, don't be shocked with that. We are living in the times of antithesis. Realize that that's the case. This audacious scoffing is interesting is precisely when the king has come and the presence of these scoffers, ironically, will actually show that we are living in the last days, right? We might say, well, how can that be? But precisely because there's so much scoffers, we know we're rolling to the end. We're getting to the edge of that great day of Jesus' return. Maybe you've seen people using all sort of cutting wit to blaspheme God's name and show contempt for him. You know, when you look at this whole idea of blasphemy and scoffing and mockery, you know what it does? It reminds us that underneath is the deep rot of sin that has affected all mankind. Man will scorn from proud chairs while learning in the devil's school. That's what he does. And so the depravity of the human heart is painted most blackly when these people will mock a Savior who is so holy. It shows the rancid breath of sin that men would dare to scoff the author of life, the one who gave them their very breath. That's what it shows. It's a reminder, I think, of the mercy that we're sitting here this morning. The fact that we are hearing the word, the fact that we can profess faith in Christ, that we aren't mocking. What a mercy that is, because we would be among them was it not for grace. God in his mercy counted us among the elect. What an unimaginable mercy that God would turn my lips of scoffing into lips of praise, that he would turn our mouths of spewing mockery into mouths singing the songs of his salvation. Jesus promised persecution to those who would praise his name. He said this, they will deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. So don't be shaken when this happened. And perhaps you're watching the news and you're seeing banks collapse and you're wondering about the stock market and you're wondering about things that may happen to your, your account, the security of your children, the future of their education, and you're becoming afraid and you're doubting. Perhaps it's your weakening body 
Maybe you've had aches and pains or a diagnosis that scares you and the frailty perhaps of your feelings, the turbulence of your emotions, the ups and downs, the instability of your relationships, perhaps with a friend that once was so close, it's now growing apart. Perhaps it's within your own household that you're realizing the the polarity. And you may be wondering, why, Lord? Why? How much longer? I don't know how much longer I can do this. And perhaps you're that person that feels that the scoffers and the attacks are shaving slices of hope off of your soul. You know, when that happens, I'm so thankful that our salvation does not depend on how I feel, on my reason, or on how much happens to me. But we know that everything is in the Lord's timing, and I don't need to know his timing to trust the God who has all things in his timing. We trust in those times. We are called to trust in Christ's sweet supply. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. My God shall supply all my need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. We have a sure anchor in Jesus Christ. And that's what the Apostle Paul says when he's talking about apostates falling away. He says in Hebrews 6, he says, we have a hope. Because Christ entered in, into the veil, into the heavenly places. And look at this verse, is Hebrews 6, 19, where it says, Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. It's solid. Which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And so when the scoffers scowl, What do we do? We study our Christ Jesus more. When they mock him, we want to know him more. When the rebels roar, remember that your life is securely hidden with Christ on high. And instead of floundering in our hope and letting it fall away, let us in those mockings be stirred up more than ever to look up, to expect, to hope, to remember. These are part of the last days. And so these scoffings should actually be encouragements of reminder and of turning deeper into the word and into Christ. So the scoffer's presence turns us to the scoffer's practice. Because Peter says these scoffers will come walking after their own lusts. We can't miss the force of that word walking, which talks about a lifestyle of sinning, a continual trajectory into it. They don't, at this point, appear in sheep's clothing. No, these guys like to show their wolf-like character. They're just open, brazen mockers, and their lives show it. They have no shame, no regret, no fear of God. Their flagrant lifestyle is according to their lusts, the, the desires of the flesh. What that shows us, it shows us that base words, empty words, and base practices, empty practices converge, right? What you say and what you do come together. One commentator put it this way, they're big words, but I thought they were pretty instructive. He says, heteropraxis begets heterodoxy. I'll define that. Contrary practices beget contrary beliefs. I think that's very true, right? The opposite, then, is also true. Holy lives beget the highest 
praises towards God, which is the encouragement. What they do in the dark, let us do in the light and praise his name. Let our lives seek more holiness. And as we grow in holiness, we will praise his name more. Now we know that the scoffer's problem is not intellectual. It's not because they don't understand everything. They're not smart. They, they don't have a high IQ. That's not the issue, is it? Their issue is moral. It goes back to a heart. And so simply knowing that you're a sinner intellectually, if that's your, you're sitting here this morning and that's what you've been told, I know I'm a sinner, I can give the answers like that. But if you do not actually turn from your sins, i.e. repentance, that's what it means, turning from, then you too will excuse, right? I'm a sinner. And you start making excuses because you don't want to turn from your sins. And you know what the near cousin is of excuses? It is contempt of God's ways. It will turn to mockery. Contempt and mockery are brother and sister. And they are cousins of excuses. The word, if you notice here, where it says, these people are walking after their own lusts. In the Greek, that's very emphatic. He's drawing out something here because these people have a lot of self-will, a lot of opposition to God's ways because I want to be a law unto myself, my own law. And Peter calls them their own lusts. It's so opposite of Jesus because remember when Jesus was tempted of the devil in the wilderness and the devil gave him all the things, all the options while he was in his deep temptation. Jesus didn't bulk. He didn't, he didn't comply to the devil's wishes. He didn't do what the flesh may crave. Not at all. Jesus says later to his disciples, he says, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. What about us? What's our will? What do we want to do? Oh, let's grow more in that desire to do the Father's will and not to follow after our own lusts. The uh, early church father, Clement, who was a disciple. Um, oh, no, he wasn't a disciple, John. But he, he wrote in 95 AD, so he would have been in the very early parts of Christianity. Clement of Rome. He says this. Let the one who has love in Christ fulfill the commandments of Christ. You know, not your own lusts. He says, in love, all the elect of God were made perfect. Without love, nothing is pleasing to God. And so love is the anchor of Christianity. Because he loved us. We love him. We long to make him more magnified in our lives. Now that gets us to a kind of a turn and maybe an introspective point here because if the scoffers are doing their own thing, walking after their own lusts, then you've got to maybe ask yourself, well, I often do what I want to do. I often fall into my own lusts. And perhaps you're struggling with the question whether you're actually numbered among the scoffers because of that. You might be Struggling this morning with the question of assurance. Because your lusts can get the best of you. So we've got to ask yourself, what are the marks of the new birth? The Puritan John Flavel, he wrote this about the new birth. He says, by regeneration, he says, these marks are there. Self-dependence is removed. 
by faith. Self-love by subjection and obedience to the will of God. And self-seeking by self-denial. If there's no marks of faith in us, no marks of subjection to God and obedience to his will, if there's no idea of self-denial in us, we must be wondering, am I really a Christian? If we see those marks, we have to be careful because assurance doesn't just happen automatically. Flavel will later go on to say this, God does not usually indulge or satisfy negligent souls. Negligent souls, people that aren't guarding something. Negligent souls, he will say, he says negligent souls with the comforts of assurance. Why? He says those are mistaken who think the assurance may be obtained without labor. If you think that you're going to have assurance of salvation by just coasting, neglecting the word, not fighting, not warring, laying down arms, just kind of floating along in life, Flavel says that will not happen. And he later talks in this book about the chastisement the Lord will give his true children. Because Flavel says this, and he's right. He says, we must keep our hearts with all diligence. The heart is what God transforms. But we have to guard our hearts. We have to definitely examine our hearts. And in times of struggle, in times of depression, in times of temptation to lust, check your heart. Examine your heart. And make sure it is single for God. And use these temptations and the struggles to keep your heart with all diligence. Are you nurturing a heart of faith in Christ? It's not going to come automatically. Do you take time to meditate on the frame of your heart? Do you apply the word of God to your struggles, to your doubts, to your emotions that are up and down and struggling like a yo-yo sometimes? Do you apply it to your thinking so that your heart is nurtured by the truths of God? These are important things to do. And we can praise God as Christians that where there is a new heart, there will be now a light that shines into a dark place where there was once complete blackness. Now there is a light of mercy, a light that ignites a hatred of the sins you once loved. The lusts may be there. You may even fall into those lusts, but you will not walk after those lusts. You will hate it. When you fall. And there will be a gradual conquering of the rebellious attitudes. Oh, they some battles will be long and fierce. But the battle will wage forward. You will press on. And most of all, the mark of a regenerate heart is this. There will be an often, a regular, and a longing, and a heartfelt fleeing to Christ. Because a heart will not turn introspectively and look at itself and say, well, today I did this, tomorrow I did that. No, a heart that is beating for Christ will yearn for Christ, will long for Christ. And when it falls, it will turn afresh to him and seek the repentance of the gospel and the gracious forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So that leads me to the last point, the scoffer's pride. Verse 4. Because notice it says this. 
They say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. They're simply doubting God's promises. This must tie back to the beginning of the book where Peter brings up the great and precious promises of God. And here, if you notice, it is the promise, particularly of his coming, that they scoff and make fun of. The word here for coming is parousia. It's a peculiar word. It's the appearance of God. And it refers to two things. It refers to his coming in glory to take his saints to be with him. And at the same time, it talks about his judgment that will come. The appearance of the king is a great appearance. And it will be a time of the tribunal as well. And so they bring their skepticism to this whole idea. And they they bring up empirical assessments. In the height of pride, these scoffers think that they are the jury to decide about how God fulfills his promises. You ever seen that? People demand how God has to think and act. Surely there can't be a God if he's not doing it this way, or surely God would have done it this way, or else he doesn't make any sense. And we start to pretend that we can understand God, and they taunt God. They make fun of him. They poke fun of the God of Scripture. Israel did this. Malachi 2, verse 17, when, when God was bringing judgment, they say, literally it says this in Malachi two seventeen. where is the God of judgment? If God were true, let's see his so-called justice. Isaiah 5, 19, they, they're brazen here as well. They, that say, it says, let him make speed and hasten his work. Almost like, bring it on. Bring it on, God, that we may see it. Oh, let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come, that we may know it. They're taunting him. Dare we demand that God dance to our tune, to march to my orders, your orders, to reveal himself by our pathetic standards, our timing? How defiantly an unbelieving heart treads into the courts of Almighty God. The uh, disciple of John, Polycarp, said this. He says, Whosoever says that there is neither resurrection nor a judgment, he is the firstborn of Satan. Strong words. That was written around 100 AD. That's early on. The challenge was there already. Oh, how we should humble our hearts at the thought of God. The mere thought of God should humble us. Will not the knowledge of the holy destroy any sense of demand in our lives and shatter all pride? Look at the text where it says, where is the promise of his coming? You might not notice it, but whose name do they not dare take on their lips? Christ's name everywhere else where it talks about the parousia when the church is saying it they talk about the coming of Jesus where's the promise of Jesus coming or our Lord's coming but not here one commentator says this about what they're doing he says they do not take his name on their lips so much do they disdain it just where's the promise of his coming the one you guys believe in 
It's almost a throwaway. As much as they hate the name of Christ, then, let us love the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us speak often of the coming of our God and Savior. Let us honor him by taking his name. Like Jesus says, you will be persecuted by all men for my name. Let us honor him and not be afraid of using his name. Do you actually realize what has happened to churches that stop preaching and loving and expecting and hoping in the return of Jesus Christ? It happens slowly over time, right? Just don't mention it regularly. The effects are astounding, however. Slowly, we see seminaries start to even make excuses for the supernatural. Perhaps pastors start apologizing for it. And the final judgment soon becomes a relic of the Christian institutions that once used to speak of them. Because we get oh so comfortable in the here and the now. You see, if we and when we may domesticate God, he becomes our marionette. And when he's our marionette, we're not accountable to him because we make him dance to our tune. We can then do whatever we want, can't we? Because we just manipulate him. And then what we've really done is we've house-trained a God after our liking. You know what that is? Idolatry. That's what it is, idolatry. And so Calvin was right when he said this, Satan aims directly at the throat of the church when he destroys the faith in the coming of Christ. The irony will be again that their presence will be their demise. These scoffers are actually fulfilling the prophetic word with their very presence that we are in the last days. Notice what they say. Their case is pretty simple. Since the fathers fell asleep, nothing has changed. Who are the fathers? What case do you think they're making here? There's two main arguments here, two main positions. Some people think that the fathers are the apostles, the church fathers, as it were. The apostles, in one sense, stood in a similar place to the church that the patriarchs did to Israel. And so Peter's taking up their words, even though Peter's still alive, he's taking up their words from the vantage point of when he would die and all the apostles would be gone and the scoffers would mock and they would use the fathers that way. Hey, since the apostles fell asleep, he still hasn't come. Now we do see the language in the New Testament of father-son relationship between the apostles and their churches. Sons in the faith, Paul would use the language. Mark would use, uh, Paul and John used the language. My little children, John says. Even Peter in his first letter says, Marcus, my son. So there's a very plausible case here that the scoffers are talking about the apostles' death and saying, hey, look, they, they died. There's been no Jesus. What kind of a faith do we really have here? Or you guys, at least. I think there's a compelling argument there, but I still think it doesn't work. Because I think I agree most strongly with the regular and everywhere else, the the pervasive use of the word fathers in the Bible, Old and New Testaments. 
and that is the patriarchs of Israel. I don't think we have grounds here to switch that. I think it would be strange for the fathers here to be the apostles, especially if you look back at verse 2, when he uses the title for the apostles so clearly, the commandments of us, the apostles of our Lord. And so I think there's a stronger case to be made here that they're referring back to the patriarchs, the fathers of the covenant people of God. Now, notice what they say. Since the fathers fell asleep, the Greek here is koimao. Now, this is an interesting word because koimao, to sleep, has a cognate, a similar word, koimaterion. What do you hear in that in English? Close. Koimaterion. Think of sleep. Cemetery. Cemetery. That's where we get it from. Koimaterion. A place of sleep. That's interesting. Because they use that word, right? They scoff it by mockingly saying, Oh, the fathers fell asleep. And this word is so dear to Christians. It's been so dear to the Jews as well. And it is a reality of the Bible that it speaks of death as a sleep. And in fact, at the end of Daniel, when it talks about the end of days, it says this, Daniel 12, 2, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So the entire expectation was that there would be a final resurrection and a final judgment. So the next time you walk through a cemetery, remind one another, remind your children, remind your spouse, remind your friend that one day every body laying there will rise up. And that's a precious reality when you lose loved ones in the Lord, isn't it? This past summer we, we were at a cemetery laying the body down of an, an older lady and one day she will rise and we will see her again. And be assured of that and take hope in that and comfort in that. Death is not the last word. Perhaps you have stood at a graveside with a loved one. In Christ, it isn't the last word. But at the same time, being at a cemetery is such a sobering place to be, isn't it? Such a sobering place. One day, others will rise as well. The likes of Hitler's and Stalin's. And we think, oh, yeah, they deserve to be judged. But it will also be family members, your neighbors, your friends, you, me. We will all rise one day and our bodies will be resurrected and we will be summoned before the great judge. And you will be either condemned in your guilt or acquitted based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone, received freely by faith. How, how will you arise? What will be the verdict for you? Have you thought about your soul? The scoffers mock on. They know this. They've been taught this. Probably some of them sat at the feet of the apostles. And they basically say, man, it's been such a long time since the fathers fell asleep. Right? The patriarchs, as you guys say, fell asleep. Isn't it high time for them to wake up? 
Many ages have passed since the death of the fathers. Obviously, no big change has taken place. They're still in their graves. Even all the way back to creation. Notice they root back to creation. All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. I mean, I could just see them saying this. If, if there would be a judgment, surely there would have been something there, some marker to prepare us, something to warn us of coming judgment. The Greek here is pregnant with force in the way they talk. When it says all things continue as they were, the Greek here is just simply all things continue thus, just as it's always been. Day after day, the same thing. You know what these guys are? We call it in modern terms, uniformitarians. That's what they are. Uniformitarians, Charles Lyell, geologist from the 1800s, taught this, that all things continue as they were. The present is the key to the past. So regular things, no catastrophe, no big change. Existing forces have always operated uniformly throughout time. Now, uniformitarianism is obviously nothing new. Lyell uses it used it the scoffers used it the epicureans used it in the greek culture epicurus says this he says this is like a couple years earlier 100 years earlier he says but in truth the universal whole always was such as it is now and always will be such for there is nothing into which it can change for there is nothing beyond this universal whole which can penetrate into it and produce any change in it. This is not much different from our modern materialists. You go to university to study geology, you are trained to deny the global flood. In fact, gradual processes are squeezed into the evidence of global catastrophe. Evolutionary biology, which I took in university, is squeezed and pressed into the clear mold of God's design and the creation of kinds. This is an interesting quote. When I was looking at Uniformitarian, as I was thinking of this guy, Professor Richard Lewinton, a geneticist, who said this. He said, almost smugly like a scoffer, he says this, we take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises to health and life, in spite of its tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories. And then he says these almost damning words. He says, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. I looked it up. Professor Richard Lewinton, he died two years ago. He lived a long life, 92 years old. His last words that are so famous in this quote is this materialism is absolute for we cannot allow the divine foot in the door well when he died he found out the divine was already through the door because it's his domain 
Job 12.10, in whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. And so really what we see here is that it's an old trick of the devil to set the course of nature against the word of God and the promises of God because it is God who is the author of the very nature and he is able at his whim and at his pleasure to change it, to destroy it, to do anything he wants with it. It is the devil who is in the business of ripping God out of our education systems such that if you take science in our secular universities today, they do not want God in the door. And so what a great opportunity I see here for us as a church, as a people, as parents, as grandparents, to reinvigorate education with God and his word, with design, with principles, with the idea that all things are made and hold together by the word of God. So when these scoffers talk about pointlessness and mindlessness, just this continuum continuum of nothingness, where there's no accountability, they are basically saying, hey, we can eat and drink and do whatever we want because tomorrow we might die and it really doesn't matter. And that's why when we evangelize the nations, we have to first undo this idea that you're not accountable. We have to remind people they are accountable to the judgment of God. Look at what these scoffers do admit, though. You know, when they say all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation, these guys at least admit a creation, a creator. But they don't want to admit a judge. They're right about one thing. And I think it's interesting. They are right about this. If there's a judgment day, it will be cataclysmic. But for us, we know it's not an if there's a judgment day. The Bible is clear. The Apostle Paul at Areopagus, at this bastion of the Greek Empire, right? The thinking place, the Mars Hill, the the place where all these Epicureans and Stoics and stuff would get together to debate and to philosophize. He simply says this, this, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man, Jesus Christ, whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance of all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. The resurrection is the conquest. The resurrection is the patent proof that he's coming again. And so I urge you this morning, any of you sitting here this morning, by your own personal appearance before the judge, you are summoned by that appearance. I urge you, don't dismiss what we talked about this morning until you have made a complete surrender to Jesus Christ whose blood can make the foulest clean? Or would you trust Jesus, who the Apostle Paul says this, is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption? Trust him. And you will pass through the judgment, acquitted, forgiven, and enter into glory. Amen. Let's pray. Holy God, we come before you, and it is a sobering reality that all in the grave will rise. Whether we're young or old, whether we lived 92 years or 92 days. Oh God, please, I pray that everyone here would think about their accountability. But more than that, think of Christ. The one who gave himself for sinners. We thank you for him. May he be altogether precious. 
I pray. I pray for young people sitting here this morning who may think they have their lives before them. Oh God, may we know him. May they turn to him and be saved. In Jesus' name.